I don't know. I'm, maybe it's because I'm a musician. I love music. I love reflecting and sitting uh, and just meditating on, especially songs like this, because the song is fairly simple. You know, it's kind of one of those newer worshipy songs where it repeats itself over and over and over and over again. But I like that sometimes because sometimes they're trying to get a point across. And I hope that as you read the lyrics and listen to the song, you got the point that the song was trying to make. It was a fairly simple idea, right? It was this idea of, of rest, of resting in the Lord. And, you know, we're going to be covering this simple well, it's not as simple, but this very well-known verse, uh, one of the more famous sayings that Jesus said in his life and ministry, and it's an invitation to rest in him, right? But I think a lot of times, in the same way that a lot of people like to get to the dessert first before they eat the hearty part of a meal, a lot of people go to the dessert of this text first without looking at what uh, Jesus is talking about beforehand. And, and so I wanna, I'm essentially going to abbreviately go through the whole chapter of Matthew 11. Bear with me. I won't take too long, I promise. You know me. I'm not a very long-winded preacher. So you guys are safe. You don't have to be nervous about that if I say I'm going to cover a whole chapter. I breathe. We're good. Okay. <laughs> All right. And, and, and so because of that, um, we have to kind of understand... Uh, Matthew as a whole, the Gospel of Matthew um, was written specifically to Jewish Christians who were doing ministry to Gentiles. And so as the author of Matthew goes through this Gospel, he over and over again is alluding to Jesus being the ultimate fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies of the Old Testament. It's all over the place because he's predominantly talking to a Jewish audience. But there's also a lot of inclusion to the Gentiles. And most of us in here would be labeled Gentiles, so that should bring us great comfort. And so he's writing to these Jewish Christians, and he's moving along and telling the story of Jesus' life all the way through uh, kind of melding together beautifully. Like, this is one of the most beautiful Gospels. I mean, all the Gospels are awesome, but Matthew's especially awesome because it has beautiful narratives about Jesus' life, and then it enfolds his teachings, and then goes back to narrative, and then his teachings, and then his narrative, and it's just, it's really well written. And as you go through it, you get to Matthew 11, and you begin to see when Jesus in his ministry is going to start to experience opposition. And when we understand that opposition, when we understand that context, one of, and I'm going to come back to this a few times, one of the opposition he's about to face, and two, who he says he is, when we get to the invitation of rest that he offers us in verse 28, yes, verse 28, it has more meaning. It has more of an impact when we see who he is and who he's claiming to be. And so, essentially what happens in Matthew 11 is this. It starts off with John the Baptist. He's in prison. John the Baptist has been, he's been doing ministry for years. He's been doing the work God has called him to. And now he's in prison. And honestly, he's getting ready to die. He's going to die in this prison. He's going to get beheaded. And while he's in prison, it's understood that, you know, let's get inside John's head here. He's been doing this ministry faithfully. 
and he's thrown in jail. Some of his disciples are starting to go over and join Jesus. And maybe he's having a few doubts. Maybe he's struggling a little. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask a question. Because he's sitting in prison. He's probably been beaten and tortured. And he's wondering. And the uh, disciples go to Jesus and they say this. They say, hey, are you the one or should we expect another? Right? And Jesus, in Jesus' fashion, answers him. And and maybe I'll just read a little bit of what he says because I love it so much. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Leopards are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who does not offend me or who is not offended by me. Sorry, who is not offended by me. And, and so, essentially, all those words, Jesus is essentially going, yes. Yes, I am the one you were expecting. And in the same, like, with the same words, he does two things to John. Uh, to John. He kind of confronts John and says, yes, you know, don't, don't start doubting now. I know you're hurting. I know you're suffering. But yes. But at the same time, it's also to bring comfort to him. And as the narrative goes on, then Jesus turns around and he starts like, and this is actually more to the comfort of John as well, is he starts talking about John. And he says some pretty, really nice things about John the Baptist. Like, for instance, Truly I say to you, among the born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. How would you like it if the Son of God said that about you? That's a big deal. Pretty exciting stuff. And that would bring great comfort to John as he's sitting and being tortured and getting ready to get his head cut off in prison. That means his ministry meant something. Because his job was to be uh, what the Old Testament said, the return of Elijah, preparing the way of the Lord. That was John. And Jesus actually tells that to a crowd of people shortly after that. And from there, he starts to kind of talk about John, because after this, the disciples leave. But Jesus is still standing there, and he starts teaching the crowd. And this is what he says. He goes, John came, and he was in the desert, and he, like, starved himself and fasted and ate locusts and dressed like a weird hobo. And you guys pretty much said he was possessed by a demon. But then I come, now he's talking about himself, and he goes, and, and I come, and, and I go to parties, I drink wine, I eat food, and you tell me I'm a glutton and a drunkard, and I hang out with tax collectors and sinners. And so no matter what is happening in this text, Jesus is going to face opposition in the same way that John faced opposition. Because no matter what, the people had broken hearts, and they could not hear the message that was being told to them. Because no matter what was done, they still rejected him. They found reasons to reject him. It it reminds me of Star Wars fans, right? I think of Star Wars fans. Star Wars fans, like big-time Star Wars fans, are the ones that complain about everything. You know, like you just had this, like, I don't know if you guys watched The Mandalorian. I'm a huge fan of Star Wars, and I just watched The Mandalorian. They did some really awesome stuff in the story of the Star Wars universe. 
And all you hear on the internet is people complain about it. But it's like, they just did some really awesome stuff, but Star Wars fans always find reason to complain. And that's these people. And then he takes it a step further, and, then he, and this is the part uh, in the story when he says the woes to these unrepentant cities. And these unrepentant cities were cities where he had performed some of his greatest miracles up to this point. He performed miracles, and he pretty much says, it'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than you guys on Judgment Day. That's what he tells them. And if you guys know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's a pretty bad city. And God pretty much said, uh-uh, and blew it up. So, And so Jesus is essentially present, pronouncing these woes. He goes from pres, uh, pronouncing these woes to people who will not hear the message of John or will not hear the message of Jesus. And then he goes, I performed miracles for you people. I rose people from the dead. I fed the hungry. And all I had was a loaf of bread and some fish. You guys witnessed these things. You watched them happen. It, it reminds me of just, uh, you, you know, one of the funniest passages in the book of Acts to me is at the beginning of Acts, Jesus has risen from the dead, he's ascending into heaven, and there's literally a little note in the, in the text that says, and as he ascended into heaven, people are, there's a crowd of people watching this happen, and there's a little note in there that says, and some doubted. Like, you're watching the dude float up into the sky. He's floating, and he's gone. And, you're, you're, and still some people doubted. Some people, or actually, actually it's going to come down to all of us at the end of the day. And this is the hard part for us. Because remember, I'm going through the meaty hardness to get to what? The sweet invitation of rest, the dessert. But we have to start with the meaty stuff. We have to start with the fact that our hearts are naturally all the doubting people. Our hearts are all naturally the Pharisees and the Sadducees who always had something bad to say about someone because they never really listened to the message that was being told. Our hearts are the Star Wars fans who always have something bad to say, no matter how awesome that one episode of The Mandalorian was that they're complaining about, which is ridiculous in my mind. And ugh. Anyways, I should just let that go. And so that leads us, once he pronounces these woes uh, to, to these cities for rejecting him, then we move into verse 25. At this time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. He's revealed them to little children. And again, as has already been discussed, these previous passages in, in, in Matthew 11, you see Jesus uh, confronting, there's the word, confronting these people for ignoring the message because their hearts are broken. And their hearts are, uh, and, and our hearts are broken. Excuse me. And so Jesus prays at this point to God the Father, and he says, thank you that you've hidden, hidden these things from people who think that they have knowledge and understanding. And you've revealed them to little children. Now, something that comes up here maybe that can be a danger is Jesus is not saying that knowledge and understanding is a bad thing. Right? Read the Proverbs. We are supposed to gain an understanding I know I, I have met lots of Christians in my day who will say things like, you know, 
no creed but Christ, or I don't need theology, I just need Jesus, right? But that's wrong. You need to gain an understanding and a knowledge and a wisdom and understanding of God's word. That needs to happen. Theology is important. I think of it like some days I'll be, uh, my wife will be doing something, and I'll just like sit and stare at her, and she'll become aware of it, and she'll be like, what? What What are you doing? Why are you looking at me? And in those moments, I'm studying her. Because I'll notice something. I'll be like, oh, that makes her smirk. Mm, and her, man, she's got a pretty little, little smirk to her left cheek when she smiles. And, and I'm studying my wife. Because when you get married, you're in a relationship and you get to know her more and more. Every day, men, you should be doing that. Your dating life isn't over just because you're married. It's only just begun. Study your wife. Anyways, the point being, though, is you are in a relationship with God. And if you're in a relationship with God and he has said, hey, you want to get to know me? Read this. Yeah, that makes theology all the more important. So this text, Jesus, is not saying that theology is not important. This text isn't saying, oh, don't worry about knowledge, don't worry about wisdom. But what does knowledge and wisdom lead to? What can it lead to in a sinful person's heart? Pride. And that's the problem. The problem isn't that these people are knowledgeable. The problem is is they take that knowledge and use it to puff themselves up instead of uh, puffing up the Lord, essentially. And that's what they do. And so God hides it from them because they essentially, honestly, hide it from themselves because they get so prideful they can't see past a certain point. And they miss a lot. They miss the miracles. In fact, what happens, too, is is they get so focused on even the miracles that are happening that they forget about the one who's performing them, right? And so then he says, I've hidden these things from these people, but I have revealed them to little children. What does it mean to be a little child? When you understand the Greek word that's used there, words like foolish, weak, dependent, and inexperienced come up. Foolish, weak, dependent, inexperienced. We don't like being called those things, right? No. If, uh, you know, most, a good chunk of you are farmers. If I were to come out to your farm and, and you were working on something and I were to walk up and tell you that you were foolish and inexperienced in what you were doing, you'd want to hit me in the head with one of your big giant wrenches, right? I'd assume so. Because one, I'm the one telling you that and I have no idea what I'm doing when it comes to farming stuff. But, but right, we don't like that idea. But what's the text saying? The text is going, I've revealed these to little children. And again, this isn't knowledge is bad. This is a mindset shift. It is a letting go of the pride because if you're really knowledgeable in God's words, you're going to learn something over and over and over again. Man is fickle. We are prone to forget. We are prone to... The Old Testament has this common theme to, uh, uh, to compare Israelites to. Sheep. Like, we are sheep. The Israelites in the Old Testament were sheep. They were weak. They were foolish. I mean, you, maybe some of you have dealt with sheep before. They're dumb. They are. And the Bible says, I'm the good shepherd. And we always focus on the good shepherd part because we never want to admit the fact that we're the weak, foolish, ignorant, inexperienced sheep. 
We don't want to admit that. But God says he reveals it to the people who have the mindset of little children. He reveals his goodness and his grace and his blessing and his offer of rest to those who are little children at heart. I think of little children like, and and the text is actually talking about small little children. I think of small little children like my little two-year-old Ellie, little children. She is very foolish and inexperienced. Let's be straight. But she also has something that I know I don't have. Uh, She trusts me unconditionally. And what I mean by that is the other day I was changing her diaper, and I finished, and she stood up. And without pause, without second thought, she dove off that. And she was lucky I was there. I caught her, and everything was fine. But she, without relent, without forethought, she just dove off of that changing table. I mean, dude, she would have hit her head hard had she not been caught by her daddy. But that didn't matter to her. She didn't think about that. You know why? Because daddy's there. Daddy's going to catch me. Do you see the mindset shift? That's who God has revealed his goodness and his kingdom to. Little children. Little children who, without hesitation, trust God. That's hard for us, isn't it? It's hard for me. That's a big reason I wrote this sermon. To talk to myself. But I'm talking to you guys too, so listen up. We're called to have the mindset of little children. We are called to be the type of people who, yes, we pursue theology and we pursue knowledge, but we also let go of the fact that we don't, we don't have it all together. You are all little children. And the reason he says he opens up the kingdom to little children is because people who are willing to admit to themselves that they're little children are going to get it. The invitation is going to make much more sense to them. If you have it all together... And you don't need the cross. You don't need the gospel. I'll do this myself. Jesus, watch out. I got it. That's the mindset. And that's the mindset we have to let go of. And that's the mindset that the little children mindset is the mindset that Jesus is calling us to. And that's who he's talking to in this passage as he prays to God the Father. Be like little children. For it is God's gracious will. Another text that comes to mind is 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31, this is Paul talking. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's a mind shift change, right? The idea here is that if we want to get to this rest we're seeking, and you might, maybe you're thinking like, I don't know what you're talking about. Everything's great in my world. I don't, I don't need that rest you're talking about, Jeremy. I'm good. But you do. You do. Now, now we understand the mindset that Jesus is going for. You want to understand the fullness of the invitation of rest that Jesus invites us to in this very famous passage that everyone knows? You have to understand that you are a little kid. It doesn't matter how old you are physically. 
We are all sheep. We are all little kids. We are all stumbling, weak, limping toddlers trying to figure out how to make our way through this world. It doesn't matter how old you are. The other thing that we have to understand, not only who we are, but we have to understand who Jesus is. And what does Jesus say about himself in this passage? Starting in verse 27, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What has Jesus just said? He just said something pretty, like, I think it was C.S. Lewis who, who said, um, you can't read Jesus and walk away saying, ah, he's a good teacher. You can't. He was either a lunatic or he was the son of God. Because the things he says about himself can only mean one of those two things. It's essentially the same as Jesus saying in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is making a claim to us this morning. He's saying, I am the only way to salvation. I am the only way to true rest. I am the only one who can take the burdens and the load off of you and put them on myself. I am the only one who can handle that weight. And when we understand who Jesus uh, says he is, that makes the invitation all the more sweeter, right? It's kind of like uh, there's certain recipes when you make recipes and you add a little bit of salt. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, because maybe I don't know how salt works, but... The salt makes something a little sweeter. I don't know how it does it, but it does it. Trust me. That's why they always say add salt into some of your baking goods because it adds to the sweetness. And so in order, in order for us to understand the sweetness of God's invitation for rest, we have to see these two things. We have to see that you are sheep. I am a sheep. I am weak. You are weak. We need saving. That's one. Two, we have to see who Jesus is. Jesus like, we're celebrating Christmas. The incarnation is one of the most, like, mind-blowing things to really comprehend sometimes. God, not of this world, he's outside of time and space, entered into time and space, into his own creation, and became the most weakest form of a human a human can be, which is a baby. Babies are completely weak, completely dependent on their mother, and their father to survive. They can't do it all by themselves. If you were to take uh, a little baby and set them out on the road and say, good luck, here's some clothes, peace out, they would have no idea what to do. They're completely dependent on, on their mother and father. And Jesus became that from being God outside of time and space, knowing the beginning from the end, being in control totally of all things. And he gave all that up to come down and be a little baby. That's the incarnation. That is mind-blowing, crazy stuff. That's why we celebrate Christmas, right? But it's that huge truth that he came down, and he, he didn't just become a baby. He grew up. He started teaching, and he started teaching some things that eventually got him killed. And the thing that he taught over and over again is, I am the Son of God, Right? All through the book of Matthew, it explores the theme of Jesus being the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies that spoke of him before he was born, right? 
And so you have these huge things come up over and over again. At his baptism, God the Father literally speaks audibly to a crowd of people as he's being baptized and says, this is my son. What more evidence do we need? He goes through a trial in the desert. He goes through the temptations. That proved that he was the son of God. He teaches and just bluntly proclaims it over and over again. I am the son of God. Then you have the transfiguration, right? That's a pretty crazy story. People witnessed him go from like a human into, well, I don't actually know what he looked like, a bright shining light that we don't fully understand or comprehend. Uh-oh. Um, just ignore that. And, right, all of Matthew proclaims this truth. That Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah, that should work. Thank you. (laughs) And as a part of the second truth that we have to understand about Jesus being the Son of God, is he has been given the authority to offer us this rest that we're seeking after. Has he not? I mean, that's what he's saying. He's saying, all things have been given to me by my Father, and no one can know the Father except through me. That's what he says. And it's only when we see the validity of who Jesus is that we understand more thoroughly his invitation. So, let's dive into some sugar cookies, shall we? Hopefully they're salted enough so that you understand the weight of what Jesus is about to invite us into. Come to me, All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the last sermon of 2020. Next Sunday, it'll be a new year. I mean, I know we're all looking forward to it. The memes on Facebook give it away. We are all looking forward to 2020 being over. Are we not? Yeah. And why is that? This has been a particularly tough year, has it not? Not only have we dealt with a pandemic, uh, a crazy political, ugh, I don't even want to talk about it. It's just gross. Tired of it. This has been a burdensome year. And maybe for some of you, it's personally been a hard year. I'll be honest, this has been a hard year for me. I, I did something this year. I took on more than I could chew, and I had to learn the hard way that at some point I had to kind of give some things up. That's what God taught me in 2020. It was rough. It was hard. Yeah. This has been a hard year. And, and some people have suffered loss and hurt and confusion. Uh, you get on social media and you don't. Like, it's so hard to get on social media and read a news story. And I'm like, I don't know if this is true or not. I don't know if I believe it. Because I can go to another article and they'll say just the opposite. How do we know what truth is? I mean, how hard is that? Doesn't that drive you nuts? Maybe not. Maybe you just stick to one news source and cool. Kudos to you. I wish I could do that. I can't. But, you know. But it's still confusing, is it not? We are so opposed. We are so torn. We are so split over so many things. From masks to thoughts on who should be our president, right? It's been a tough year. And so when Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. 
He is talking to the people. And I'm going to say all of us. He's talking to all of us. And he's saying, come to me, all who have been working and burdening and adding weight upon your shoulders that you cannot carry and put it on me. I titled this sermon, Our Rest, His Burden. Because at the end of the day, when we understand the beauty of the gospel message, what it means to be a Christian is that we as humans try to do the work on our own. And Jesus says, stop it. Stop it. I got it. You can't handle it. You're the little lost sheep, remember? Quit trying to be the shepherd. You can't do it. You can't do it. We're all burdened. We're all carrying a load on our backs that we can't handle. And Jesus says, come, I'll give you rest. And you know why he's able to give you rest? Because he took the burden upon himself. At the end of the day, all the works we do, all the lifestyles that we live and try to live and and be and the type of people we uh, try to be, all of that is us trying to find God. All of that is us trying to be good enough to be in God's presence. Because at the end of the day, every single soul in the world is trying to do that. Even if they're not aware of it. Even if they're atheists and say God doesn't exist. No, no. They're looking to please God because that's what we were wired and created to do. And we're all carrying this burden on us. So all of us. And Jesus says, come to me. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, I love living in Big Sandy because most of you all know what a yoke is. I don't have to really explain it. And maybe just in case you don't, I'll explain it anyways because, you know, why not? A yoke is essentially the thing that held a, a steer to a cart or to a plow, right? It's something that you have to put around your neck and pull something with. And so the assumption here is Jesus isn't saying like, you know, you weren't wearing a yoke before, let's put on a yoke. No, no. He's saying take off that old yoke. The yoke of you uh, trying to uh, rely on yourself or on pleasures or on your work ethic or your family or your community or your political standing. Stop trying to rely on those things. Take off that yoke and put on mine. And the reason is, is at the end of the day, we have to wear a yoke. Remember, we're sheep. Again, we don't like that. We want to be the one with the whip saying, whoosh, whoosh. That's what we want to be. But that's not the case. It's not the case. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. Essentially what he's saying is, is as a Christian, if you believe the gospel and you do, okay, so if you go back earlier in the chapter and you look at the woes when he said unrepentant cities, like he, he, he performed these miracles to people and they right over their heads. Because what he wanted them to do was repent and put their faith and trust in him. That's what those miracles were meant to do. They're they're meant to point to him as the Savior. And they didn't see it. And so now he offers this invitation to us and he says, see it. And what do we have to do in response to that? We have to repent and put our faith and trust in him. And as Christians, now, if you have done that, you're a Christian, you've been saved You've been bought by the blood of the Lamb. You've been made a new creation. You've been uh, given a new heart. You once had a heart of stone and it's been ripped out and you've been given a new fleshy heart. 
You've been spiritually awakened to the fact that you are God's kid and you've been adopted into his family. That gospel, that understanding, once that happens, yeah, we have to put a yoke on. We do. And that yoke includes learning from him. That's why he says that. He says, submit to his teachings. That means my life isn't about my will anymore. If God says no, no to something, I say, okay. I don't like that. It doesn't feel right to me, but I'm going to do it anyways because you're better. That's what that means. You put on his yoke. Stop trying to carry your own junk around. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why is his yoke easy and his burden light? His yoke is easy and his burden is light because he took on the full weight of the burden that we couldn't bear ourselves. That's the gospel, man. That's gospel right there. Mm -hmm. Hear that. The gospel is, is that you had a burden and a weight that you could not carry on your own. You owed something to God and you couldn't pay him back. You were in the courtroom and you couldn't pay it. But he did. He did. And so now we get to put on a new, easy and light yoke and live and submit our will to him and not be about ourselves anymore. So, there's a lot here, right? I essentially told you all a bunch of dumb lost sheep. Sorry about that, by the way. I've essentially also told you that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior that we all want and need, and even if we're not aware of it, it's the truth. And that the only way to find true rest as we finish up 2020 is to run back to the arms of Christ and put our faith and trust in him. If you're not a Christian, repent and put your faith and trust in him. I promise you, Anything the world has to offer does not compare to him. It will not work. Trust me, I tried. It didn't pan out so well. In Christ, you will find the peace you are looking for because that is what we're looking for. We're all looking for it. Any other religion will tell you that. We're all looking for peace. We're all looking for rest. And so for those who aren't in Christ, come on. What are you waiting for? He's saying, come His arms are open. And if you are in Christ, and maybe you've forgotten, because again, remember what I told you? You're sheep. You forget. Remind yourself of the gospel. Spend this last week of 2020 reflecting on the goodness of God. Turn off your social media. Stop focusing on all the crap that's in the world and focus on the goodness of God. He's One, he's been good to us this year, despite all the hardships we've been through. And two, the gospel is awesome. Reflect on it. Think about it. Think about the fact that you deserved hell and God's wrath and Jesus took it upon himself so you didn't have to. It's not a popular message, I know, but it's the truth. Think about it. Reflect on it. If you need to repent, repent. And as I started, I started with this beautiful song and it had this little prayer in it. I want to encourage you to pray it. This week as well, it says, Father, bless your name. Let your kingdom come. Give me eyes. Help me see and believe your son. Give me faith. Let me rest 
in the work he's done. Because the work is done. The work is done. He's done it. Put on his yoke. It's easy. It's light. His burden, our rest. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. I pray that as we reflect on your gospel, as we reflect on the good news of you coming and becoming a baby and growing up and dying the death we deserved, that we would reflect on that, that we would be challenged by that, that we'd be encouraged by that, and that we'd go out and tell the rest of the world about it because at the end of the day, it's the best news in the world. Give us a fire. Give us a passion. Help us to become people who submit and put on your yoke because it is easy and light. Thank you for this time, Lord. I love you. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Have a good week, guys.